Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Hack. Um, I'm really quite excited today, Lena. Are you excited? Very much so. Really actually excited. We're going to do some oral history, aren't we? Um, we're going to take something quite recent, um, but kind of get it down for the record um, and do some personal experience stuff, which I'm really thrilled about because we've been joined by um, retired Lieutenant Colonel Cameron McNish of the British Army. Uh, Cam, you said you only use your rank for two things now. What are they? Well, potentially three. Uh, it's either to secure money, uh, sex, or potentially even an upgrade on a plane, none of which has <laughs> entered my life recently. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so you actually, uh, you're actually at work at military headquarters near Bristol, aren't you? Because uh, you you've got a, a role in what's playing out with coronavirus at the moment. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, my, my logistics background um, has played into uh, my new role, which is uh, working for an excellent company called Team Lidos. Uh, they run the base support and supply chains for the Ministry of Defence, uh, and we're intimately involved in supporting the military's uh, support to the NHS uh, in these troubled times by ensuring that uh, uh, people have got adequate PPE if they're going into, uh, you know, setting up that, that hospital in East London or sending rotary wing helicopters up to out of Scotland to transport uh, aircraft and, and, and the air crew need PPE for all that sort of thing. And we're, we're the ones getting them that stuff. You're even doing like body bags and like horribly. You're even sort of thinking well, way down that, the line that's there. Conti- that's contingency planning. Um, uh, no one's anticipating that. and We hope it never, never touches it. But we, it's a, a, a sad fact of life that the Ministry of Defence obviously has those sorts of uh, things on, on its shelves, our shelves, uh, ready in, in, in case it's needed. But uh, I wouldn't want to dwell on that too much. It's... Uh, it's just uh, one of those facts of life, and uh, I'm, I'm sure the NHS will rise to the occasion as it already is, and uh, that won't be necessary. Yeah, fingers crossed it all turns out that part of it at least to be a massive waste of time. Um, right, let's, so first of all, let's address the first thing. before. First, on the, We're going to have a couple of episodes with you. Today we're going to talk about Op Granby, which is obviously Golf 1. Um, but first, you have the wrong accent for, uh, for a colonel in the British Army, so explain to us, how did you, as an Australian, end up in the British Army? Uh, well, I started off in the Australian Army, uh, uh, and um, way back when Jesus played fullback for Jerusalem, as they say, uh, <laughs> or when uh, when when uh, when Centurion was it was a rank, not a tank. But um, I then did uh, an exchange posting for a few months in 1984 with the British Army, and uh, uh, the beer was cheaper, so I basically transferred uh, in '86 uh, and spent uh, having done six years in the Australian Army, did 24 years in the British Army, leaving. Uh, some 10 years ago. 
I like because the beer is cheaper. Joe, we have a great representation from Australia. We've we've had English Shield on as well already, who joined our down the pub session at six a.m. Sydney time with a cocktail shaker in hand. But we do not want to represent all of you Australians as um, alcoholics. Uh, we want to talk to you, you don't about. Want to go down <laughs> no, we, we don't want to. I want to talk to you about um, your long and illustrious and hardworking career with the British Army. So let's talk about Golf One. Um, how did it all come about? Why did it come about? And, and what, what was your initial involvement? Well, clearly at the time, we, we, we didn't put the number one after it because we didn't realise there was going to be another one. But then, of course, the Great War turned into World War One, didn't it, when the second version came along? But, um, yeah, well, obviously, old uh, Uncle Saddam, who, who actually did me a, a favour in the end, he, he caused me to not drink for five months in a, in a row uh, whilst I was out there, which was, except for one glorious evening on New Year's Eve in 1990. So... Uh, you probably put about a few years on, on my, my longevity, but uh, he invaded uh, Kuwait in uh, August '90, uh, and then, uh, and of course, the, the difference with that and, the, and Gulf War Two was it was a very just war. The country had been invaded by uh, uh, Iraq, so uh, the world uh, formed a coalition uh, led by the Americans and uh, George H. W. Bush and uh, uh, Maggie Thatcher at the time, although she departed the scene halfway through, um, and. Uh, we sent in the end, I think it was something like 40 odd thousand, 35,000 troops. But uh, at the be- we're at the beginning, uh, and my background is transport, logistics, uh, and I was based in what was still then just West Germany uh, in a lovely town called Bielefeld. Uh, I was the adjutant uh, of 10 Corps Transport Regiment, about 600 odd soldiers, uh, all male in those days, uh, which made my life much easier because there was no fraternizing to worry about. Um, and um, most of them were little shits trying to uh, fight either Germans or if no Germans were found, they'd fight another regiment. If they couldn't find another regiment, they'd fight each other. Uh, so I was very busy, which actually meant the war was very quiet in some respects for me because there was no drinking and therefore there was no mucking about uh, and discipline to worry about, which allowed us to concentrate on the job at hand, which was fighting a war. And uh, even the worst soldiers were uh, actually brilliant soldiers on the ground uh, doing their day job. Um, so uh, we were told to uh, get ready to, to go. My commanding officer was asked by 1st British Corps headquarters, which was just down the road in Bielefeld. Uh, Bielefeld, from a military point of view, is quite famous because it's where the first, uh, I think it was a uh, first uh, earthquake-type bomb by the RAF was dropped on the Bielefeld Railway viaduct in 1944. Uh, but it recovered and was, was lovely. And we went up uh, and I went to the headquarters and uh, we actually had no maps funnily enough, of Kuwait, because our role had been Cold War, wait for the Russians to come, and then basically half of us would, would die, uh, and World War Three would be finished by buckets of instant sunshine, uh, nuclear. Uh, and so we were ready for that sort of war, but we weren't ready to, to do expeditionary warfare, which was to go overseas and, and expand your lines of communication. Um, and so uh, we were, and of course it was pre-computers in those ancient days, uh, and so we used bits of paper to work out what, how much we'd need. And the logistic uh, principles, which is very boring, but uh, makes it interesting from a, from a technical point of view, are the four Ds, demand, distance, duration, and destination. And, uh, and we didn't know how much we'd need. We didn't know how far we we're going to go because we used to be drawing on our lines. Um, uh, we know we'd be going forward to, to certainly defend and then attack uh, Iraq at some stage. We didn't know the routes we'd take, which makes transport planning very difficult because you don't know how many wagons you need. And... Uh, 
And so I, I was in a third line regiment, so we had big heavy lift transport and, and fuel tankers. Um, and there was going to be one second line transport regiment, uh, which in fact was my former regiment. So I met my former soldiers out there up in the desert. Um, and uh, we were told to plan on, it could be either my regiment, 10 regiment, or our rival regiment, 8 regiment. Uh, and every time their backs were turned to the main staff officers, I kept putting number 10 next to the map symbol for transport, which is a little wagon wheel. Uh, in the end, they just accepted that as part of the plan, and that's how 10 regiment got involved in the war, rather than our rivals, which I thought I was quite proud of. Probably I'm my best bit and secured me promotion, no doubt, to major downstream. That's really um, sneaky. <laughs> Did they not literally drag you guys out of bed and tell you you were going? Well, that's what that that was Cold War type stuff. So we were we were we were used to being dragged out of bed uh, to practice in case the Russians attacked at no notice. Uh, but that wasn't. This was more of a deliberate operation, clearly. Um, and um, and we had to the a very clever staff officer back in the UK somewhere had to um, secure lots of ships. For, to put our, our uh, initially it was the Desert Rats, as they call it, 7 Arm Brigade, which is based in Fellingbostel, uh, which would normally just have half a regiment to support it, but they provided two regiments at mine and, and uh, one Div Transport Regiment in Bunda. And, uh, uh, and then subsequent, when, when we got out there, uh, it, was, uh, it was four Armour Brigade uh, and, and, and two more transport regiments. And of course, there were supplies, there were Remi, there were gunners and all that sort of thing as well. But, but that's how it worked out. And so um, we uh, ended up taking two of our three task squadrons, nine squadron, which was the fuel squadron, big heavy fuel tanks, 22,000 litres, 17 squadron, which had 14 tonners, uh, and a squadron with brand new trucks the Army had only just bought. Uh, that was from our sister regiment, 8 Regiment, called DROPS, demountable rack offloading pickup system, big arms that come around like you see on, on uh, waist tipper things you see these days. Uh, and they had flat racks and they had a brand new set of kit that was designed called bean cans to carry both fuel uh, and or water and they were called water bean cans for transporting bulk water because we knew going to the desert we need a lot of that um and so we um we uh, loaded up the ships in emden up in northern north germany and uh, nominated a few soldiers who thought they were going on a bit of a pno cruise but um most of the ships were uh, Eastern European and, uh, and most of the crew didn't speak any uh, English. So it actually was a bit of purgatory for the poor buggers. Uh, and meanwhile, whilst we'd set the vehicles out, we obviously that's going to be four or five weeks before they got out there. So we um, finished doing basic training, getting our soldiers, uh, you know, all weapons uh, zeroed and all that sort of routine. We still had the old SLRs in those days. Um, the infantry had SA80s and all that sort of thing. And uh, we did some cultural training an education corps officer tell us on why it was called the Middle East. We never thought of why it was called the Middle East. It's only the Middle East if you're based in England, uh, which is why you have the Near East, Middle East and Far East. If you actually live in Southeast Asia, as the, the Australians call it, it's not the Far East because that's where you live. But uh, things like that. And um, anyway, so the, all the commanding officers in RSMs deployed in late September, which was classic recce, but no one had thought actually what you need is to send the loggies forward first rather than the, the glory hunter cavalry types and all the rest of it because you need to set up things like feeding accommodation tented camps and all that sort of thing and that's what the british army does routinely now uh, but at the time it was a bit of a learning curve um and um and i went out to uh, al Jabail, uh to find my commanding officer and the regimental sergeant major moving um, pallets around to uh, provide divisions for areas to set up camp cots and that sort of thing for these soldiers to be received um, 
to be put on the one, one and only computer I think that was available at the time. Uh, so we had a database of everyone that came into, into theatre, um, fed and watered, briefed on intelligence and then released to the units. And, and that was a really busy time because at the same time the soldiers were arriving, the ships full of ammunition, full of uh, rations, full of spares um, and all that sort of engineer stores, uh, defence stores were, were arriving and our trucks had arrived on one of the first ships because that was a good idea. Uh, and we were using them very busily to move this stuff off the port and into uh, ammo um, dumps and, and ration areas. We took over a warehouse or two here or there. Uh, and uh, the Saudis gave us lots of support, uh, as you would expect. Although we, were, we obviously weren't, weren't drinking anything. And, and interestingly enough, when our sister regiment came out about a month later, 27 Regiment, they had the first female soldiers uh, attached to them. Um, and that was a real problem for the Saudis initially, um, as in fact was uh, our padre. Um, initially, I was told they're not allowed to wear their crosses, which, uh, although I'm not overly religious, uh, I found rather offensive because we were there to keep Saudi Arabia free from Saddam coming further south. But all that was sorted over time. And, and given um, that um, cultural um, like stuff like that, you, you said that you did a briefing. Um, what kind of stuff did they tell you in this briefing about what to do and not do? And we were told, for example, uh, be careful about using your left hand because the the, um, the Arabs use it to wipe their bottoms with or something like that. And so you you don't. Well, I'm le- which is a problem for me because I'm left-handed. Um, <laughs> and um, in in terms of writing, clearly, Alex. Uh, and um, um, and uh, I'm saying nothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly. Um, and I, I can't remember the detail. I mean, the thing is, of course, we're, we're so used to working uh, in, in a sort of Muslim environment because of various um, fun and games since then. It's it, it's pretty normal routine now. At the time, uh, it was all a bit of a, a novel concept. Uh, and also the fact that Saudi Arabia, I think, is a theocracy. So the Saudis review Saudi Arabia in its entirety as a sort of sacred place as opposed to Christianity where the church is sacred but the rest of it's not. So there's little things like that. And also no pornography and um, and pornography not being allowed. And I was very gung-ho on that initially. Um, I told the soldiers not allowed to view pornography and all that sort of routine. But in the end, uh, we turned a bit of a blind eye to that sort of thing. We're in the middle of the desert where there weren't any Saudis to worry about. So that Um, was all good fun stuff. Those 20, I think they're working still, that sounds like they were still working off the 27 articles of how to deal with Arabs and Muslims and stuff um, that T. Lawrence came up with. Is that right? I think they still use that today. Well, it might well be. It's certainly a good start up, start up for 10, get you impact type thing. Um, of course, we were used to driving on the right-hand side because we were driving in Germany on the right-hand side. Uh, so that wasn't a problem. Um, and there wasn't much uh, to worry about. Although petrol, and diesel was really cheap out there, which was great. And one of my one of my officers, one of the officers in my regiment, almost ran out of fuel because he'd miscalculated, and he pulled into a Saudi desert with his wallet just to pay for the fuel, so he didn't get the embarrassment of running out of fuel. And his eyes popped as he saw the dial going up because it was all in Arabic. And he thought, "Oh my God, this is going to cost me a nightmare." And actually, what he was watching was the amount of fuel going in. The slow dial was there. How much it was going to cost? So it caught him costing £10.50 or something like that in, in local local lingo. Uh, so, yeah, all that sort of good fun stuff. And um, uh, and to be honest, we didn't, we weren't too busy uh, or involved in, the, in, the, in the, the cultural side because we were flat out. We were working 18, 20 hours a day and, uh, uh, and it was stinking hot too. Um, and uh, so you yes. don't really have time for worrying about that. 
so going back to your deployment, um, you sent everything on to Emden, didn't you? Yeah, we sent, we sent them. That was the nearest port in North Germany because uh, we're in northern Germany anyway. Uh, and it's a port where you can have roll-on, roll-off vessels like ferries um, um, turn up. So that, And we drove, we could drive all our vehicles on. It's much quicker driving onto ferry-type vessels rather than having a crane lift them on one-by-one one type thing. And certainly for the tanks, clearly, they, they only have to roll on uh, using their tracks and stuff. Um, so what were the guys what were your guys expecting when it came to did you get asked by them were they expecting you to know what it was going to be like when they got to uh, the Middle East yeah there was, there was a bit of expectation management because we weren't entirely sure what we were up for either it was it was exciting and slightly fearful uh, we knew that Saddam Hussein uh, had uh, we were pretty confident he had uh, chemical weapons uh, uh, available to him uh, so we did a lot of, um, and we've been training for that in the Cold War anyway, uh, with NBC suits and respirators. So we're relatively comfortable that we were, uh, would be able to operate in a chemical environment if it came down to it. Uh, although I must admit, we, we, when, I'm jumping forward a bit, but at one stage we went into, when, uh, when the air war started, we were in this uh, Blackadder camp, as it was named. And interestingly enough, the Brigadier White, who was the RCT Brigadier, in charge of the, the, the logistic brigade there, um, his daughter wrote to him and said, Daddy, I'm sure you'll come up with a cunning plan because Blackadder was quite popular at the time. And he decided to adopt the Black Adder as the symbol. And it's still the symbol of 101 Logistic Brigade uh, today. Uh, and so we named the camp Blackadder Lines. Um, and we had just tents, basically, and open, open-sided tents. We would sit down and, and eat three times a day. And the poor old chefs were in these uh, chemical warfare suits, but without the respirator on, cooking chips, because obviously the British soldiers didn't go anywhere without chips. Uh, and uh, they, were, uh, they were losing quite a lot of weight in sweat. Um, but, um, but yeah, so, so we were confident on, on, on that front, but no one really knew what it was like to operate in the desert. I had one of the soldiers come up to me at one side and said, uh, excuse me, so you're from Australia? What's it like operating in the desert? Uh, I just had to say, bugger it up, I know, mate. I, I grew up in Sydney. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's uh, but, but fortunately, the, my warrant officer, Chief Clark, was packing and he, he'd done some reading and he said, I guess it's quite cold in the desert at night. I said, do it really? And that rang, rang a bell somewhere. So he packed a couple of electric heaters into our operations trailer, which was a big, like caravan type thing where we put all the maps on the wall and and I think I sent you a picture of myself reclining reading a quality um, uh, paper called the Daily Star some stage we'll which made us post this on Twitter better. when we put uh, your interview up but yeah you are reading the Daily Star and Very uh, but I packed my yeah well unfortunately I normally take the Telegraph but we, you take what you get uh, when you're in the desert <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, so I packed my old Australian Army great coat with me. And as I would walk around the lines and our and our birds were up in the desert, uh, just uh, visiting the chaps in the uh, sentry posts. It was uh, came in very handy having that great coat. I must admit. That said, what was fantastic and what I wasn't expecting was the brilliance of the stars. Uh, of course, there was no light pollution out there in the desert. It was just fantastic, absolutely awesome to to behold. Tell us about the journey out there. Um, well, the the, uh, the the main body of which I, I was part, because the commanding officer had gone ahead, um, we were transported in buses uh, up to uh, Hanover Airport. Uh, and I remember sitting next to uh, Corporal Davies, one of the chefs, who said that one of his more junior chefs had just, uh, he'd picked him up from the uh, the Marriott quarter that morning to come to the bus to go away 
on an operation where some of us might die. We didn't know when we we're going to come back. Uh, and he said, uh, and this, this, this lad says he's off. All right, love. See you later. Gives her a kiss on the cheek and hops in, the, hops in his car, which he found very amusing. Anyway, we got to Hanover Airport, and I think we had a charter airline that doesn't exist anymore called Britannia. Uh, I think it's Britannia. It might be Cal- no, it was Caledonia, because all, ner- all the nurses, all the uh, stewardesses were wearing little kilty-type dresses things. Anyway, so we, we got on there, and uh, my lads were a bit raucous, and uh, not so much, you know, just, just chatting up and flirting with, with the stewardesses. Uh, and what was quite touching, because uh, I said to one of the stewardesses, look, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a captain, and I've got the sergeant major with me. If you get any problems with the lads, because most of these lads on the plane are my regiment, uh, let, let us know, and we'll, we'll control them and calm them down. And she said, oh, that, that compared to the charter flights, we go to Mallorca and Tenerife. These are nothing. Uh, <laughs> but, but also what was, what, was, what was quite touching is that they said, look, we're really proud to be able to take you guys out there. And we really hope that we can bring every one of you back, which was quite, quite nice of them to say. Refueling Cyprus on the way out there. And we knew that we weren't getting any more alcohol for the foreseeable future. So it's amazing how, many, how quickly you can shove beers down your throat um, in a very small bar environment. And unfortunately, they were quite efficient refueling the aircraft. So we were rather hoping they'd take longer. But we, uh, we got a couple of, couple of bottles each down, downstream and then um, hopped on the plane. And as the door opened, as we landed in uh, Alaman, Alaman, I think it was. It's about an hour south of Al Jabal on the coast. Uh, we met, it was about two o'clock in the morning, met by this blast of hot air, which uh, was a real culture shock, as, uh, as you can imagine. And we were put on dodgy third world buses and, and, and bust up to uh, up to Al Jabal. So uh, tell us about, you mentioned Black Camp. I love the name. I think it's brilliant. Um, tell us about life in camp. Um, well, it was, uh, we had green, because uh, obviously the army loves the colour green, green canvas tents. Um, and, uh, and, and very low level to the ground camp cots, uh, which was the standard army issue camp cot at the time, which is comfortable enough. But one of our major concerns, because we were working uh, initially when we deployed, we under, came under the US Marine Corps, so co-located with the Marines. Um, and they had different kit. They had lots of kit. They had, Americans have always got lots of stuff. And, uh, and we suddenly found ourselves thinking we could barter for um, their camp cots. And one of my enterprising young soldiers, bearing in mind we were Royal Corps of Transports, or RCT, and we were wearing berets, but we hadn't realised the American Army, only special forces wear berets. Uh, and so uh, the Americans, one of their priorities was to get Baskin Robbins out there, which we were quite impressed with, I must admit. So uh, one of the cues for Baskin Robbins in the camp one day, uh, one of my soldiers was asked by this American, hey man, what, 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 what unit are you in? He said, oh, I'm in the RCT. He said, wow, you got a cool beret. beret. Um, What's RCT stand for? And he thought it, it wound him up. He said, oh, it stands for Recon Combat Troops, mate. He went, oh, wow, can I have your beret? And he got, he got, a, he got a camp cot for it. And uh, so I, I popped down to get the, uh, the, the, the next, next, um, next haggled camp cot. The other thing we were worried about was camel spiders, which we heard all about as part of the training. These camel spiders that... The, either the male or the female injects poison into you and then the, the opposite sex one comes and eats through we'd heard a story, apocryphal story of a soldier having half his cheek eaten away because and we therefore didn't want to be too close to the ground um and uh so we we're quite keen to get so i i, I uh, swapped my officer pattern rct beret for a camp cot and you fast forward towards the end of the war when the commanding officer said i think we should stop wearing helmets and put our berets back on sir 
uh, chaps and, and I said well I think it's a bit premature so you never know they might be sort of like stay behind forces and meanwhile I wrote a letter and a blank check off to Geeves and Hawks at, at London uh, and asked them for a size eight and a half beret sent by first class post later and I, I, I then said to see I think it's time to go back to berets so. <laughs> that's brilliant I never underestimate the continued um, enterprising nature of the British soldier and officer uh, those camel spiders I've got uh, friends who served um, in Iraq um, after 2003 and I hear these fantastic tales about how they're literally when they spread out they're as long as your rifle uh, you can't they're see-through or something I might have a, a New Zealander friend who served <laughs> in the Princess of Wales who says that he was more scared of those than he ever was of any incident oh, no, they are the horrendous things. I mean, I, I, the soldiers would capture the odd scorpion just to sort of tease it and torture it and all that sort of thing. But no one, no one will go near any camel spiders. So uh, that was definitely it. So anyway, we, we were busy uh, carting stuff around and inloading stuff, and uh, the force built up and um, uh, ammunition, defence stores, rations, uh, and all that sort of routine. Um, we also uh, realised we didn't have enough transport. We'd taken quite a few extra soldiers. In fact. Um, an interesting point, which has never been replicated, I think, in uh, more recent operations, was we were, we were front-loaded with 10% extra soldiers on top of what our establishments allowed for. These were battle casualty replacements, and we were expecting to lose about 10% of our uh, total force. So they thought it would be a good idea to give these extra soldiers, which they pillaged from different units in the UK that weren't deploying. Uh, and so we had these extra soldiers, but we, we had spare drivers. Uh, and we got hold of... Um, uh, some local uh, fuel tankers and local trucks for both our drivers to drive, uh, as well as recruited some local uh, local labour. Uh, and we formed a troop, a rather un-PC called Chogichu. I tried to look into what the, the original word Chogichu, I think it's what the Navy called their Chinese laundrymen or something like that. But we had Pete Conlon, um, uh, who was given the task, uh, Lieutenant, to uh, cohere and corral these very indisciplined uh, people who are on a different time zone to the rest of humanity and um, uh, and and provide additional, they were driving buses, they were driving uh, low loaders and, and, and trucks, but they provided an essential service without which we would have been more challenged to be ready to deploy into the desert as, as it were. We did have a, a moment with the CSO, I think I'd like a photo with, with Pete and, and uh, our local drivers, Cameron, can you organise it? So I told Pete to organise it at seven o'clock the next morning uh, and I went down there, and, and it was just pandemonium, as you would expect. Uh, Pakistanis <laughs> and Indians everywhere, and, and, and all that sort of thing. They had to have separate portaloos because they didn't. They, they they did use their left hands for that sort of thing, and our soldiers didn't want to squat in the same portaloos. But we got rid of that, um, and then. Um, and it was pandemonium. I said, Pete, what did I tell you? The commanding officer was he told to be here for seven o'clock. He said, Cameron, I've been here since four thirty this morning trying to do this. This is what my every day is like. You understand? <laughs> I was, Absolutely. I'll take the commanding officer away for a cup of tea and then get a sort of new tell us when you're ready. Um, uh, and, and getting back to what you said before about life in the camp, uh, I was on night duty, uh, which made it problematic because I'd go to bed at seven o'clock in the morning after a bit of brekkie. Uh, and around about nine, ten o'clock, it was just too hot to, to sleep. And, um, and uh, so I'd have to wake up. But what it meant was I was having my evening was breakfast. So whilst everyone was having their bacon and eggs, um, we were allowed to have bacon, uh, luckily, um, and a cup of tea. I was there drinking the Moosey Swiss non-alcoholic beer with my opposite number, who was also on night shift, and people thought I had a drinking problem. But uh, but it was uh, it was our way of relaxing before we sort of hit, hit the camp. And then 
there was all, to, all, all sorts of bits and pieces. We, we, uh, we had to support the engineers. I got a call one evening uh, from the engineer officer asking for a, one of our water bean cans carrying 10,000 litres of water to go up to the desert. And I was bored witness at this stage. So I said, what, what's it for? And he said, oh, begins in never. Prince Charles is coming out. We're going to have the desert groomed just like a bowling green. We're going to have demonstrate bridging and mine clearance and and, uh, and and with these flail flail type things and all that sort of routine. Was, oh wow! What else are you doing? Oh, we're going to uh, we're going to dig dig a bit dig a deep um, hole in the ground where we're going to have a pretend bomb as if it was an Iraqi bomb, so we can use our get get down there and demonstrate how we uh, we uh, de- um, defuse bombs i said oh that sounds exciting he said yeah we're getting the strain to climb out just as he gets up to the top and uh pretend he's just climbed out of a, a deep tunnel from bondi beach i said oh, that's interesting who who are you going to use because australia hasn't got any troops in the war and he said oh well actually we haven't found one yet do you want to come along and be our token aussie i said yeah that'd be great so i got permission of the ceo to go up through this demo and uh, I happened to have a couple of boomerangs with me because I'd read somewhere the war was 90% boredom and 10% shitting yourself. So I thought I'll take a couple of boomerangs for the desert when, I, when I'm bored. And, um, and uh, so I took my boomerangs up there. And as Prince Charles came along, I climbed up in my board shorts and T-shirt and thongs or flip-flops, uh, chucked the boomerangs on the ground and uh, coming up with something corny like Spruce. That's a long way from Bondi Beach, mate. And he was there and he said, oh, I'm fascinating having an Australian here. So I introduced myself as Captain Cameron McNish, RCT. How did Prince Charles react to that? Uh, it was very polite and regal, as you can imagine. And uh, he said, uh, oh, how, um, what are you doing here? And I explained that I'd transferred armies, that sort of thing. And he picked up one of my boomerangs and said, uh, so how do you throw this thing anyway? So I said, oh, we well, sort of put at this angle and slight cock the wrist and uh, and he said oh, I'd be excellent because uh, he'd broken his arm I think nine months earlier on a polo accident or something other. so he said it'd be good, good training for my wrist and he looks across to where the press were corralled about 20 yards away I'll be busy happy snapping because they weren't expecting Prince Charles to be holding a boomerang in the middle of the Saudi Arabian desert that's a great fat opportunity uh, as I subsequently realised and uh, he, said, he looked across the press and he said, whispered to me he said with any luck, I might be able to hit one of those bastards over there. And um, so he chucked the boomerang and it actually did a really good chuck and it ended up coming back behind me. Uh, and then he moved on to the next stand and that was fine. And the press all cooked him. What, what did the Prince Charles say? I thought, oh, well, I won't say exactly what he said. I said, it was good training for his arm. Right, so uh, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was suddenly elevated, suddenly elevated to uh, um, picture, picture, picture Aussie of the day back in Australia, as I subsequently realised, my parents saw me Bearing in mind, you didn't have internet in those days or anything like that. My parents saw me on the television that night on the news uh, saying an Australian in Saudi Arabia has just been meeting Prince Charles and uh, Captain Cameron McNish. So my my parents were most impressed to see me on the news. Talk to us about um, how you you mentioned there there's no internet. How did you keep... So this is all... You're doing snail mail, aren't you, to stay in touch with everybody. That must have been quite an epic effort to manage as an officer. It was, it was. We had British Forces Post Office. Uh, they were very busy. Aerograms were the way ahead, uh, but written, uh, nothing nothing uh, computer-wise. So letters would get through in about a week, 10 days, so it wasn't too bad from that point of view. We did have a, um, we did have a uh, thing called BFDO 6000, which was a good sort of means by which people in the UK could write to a random soldier in the desert or an airman in the desert, whatever. Uh, and these first started arriving. My original chief clerk said, uh, we better just open these up to make sure there's no hate mail. You know, we weren't sure 
that stage that was going to be such a popular war. Um, and um, uh, and some of them included photos. They were all aerograms. Some of them were proper letters. And uh, and one of them included a picture of a rather attractive girl who just wanted to write to a soldier in the desert. And uh, my chief clerk, who was married, said to me, you're single, so do you want this one? I said, oh, that sounds fantastic. Thanks, chief. I'll, I'll make sure I recommend you information on the next annual report. Um, <laughs> but, but, but we quick we quickly realised that, that they're all very popular, and so we just started dishing them out randomly, uh, and, and a number of them uh, resulted in uh, uh, some successful shagging episodes after the war finished, and the lads uh, met up. Unfortunately, in my case, when we got back, I, I met up with the girl uh, and her friend, um, with my mate, uh, to go on a double date in London, and her mate had put on a considerable amount of weight in the two or three months of the uh, since the photo allegedly had been taken, and. Uh, we had one evening out, which was a complete failure on, on an epic scale, and we just decided to go on an epic bender for the next week and spend the money we'd saved from from being at war for five months. So, so uh, yeah, but it was good. It was really good. And um, and the other way of staying in touch was the World Service because we only saw a very small, microscopic part of the the war and and trying to understand what was happening in the bigger picture and what countries were happening and and all the rest of it was uh, World Service. And uh, as a result, one of my favourite tunes is Lily Bolero which was the theme tune for the news as, as, as the World Service would come on. We had a little sort of transistor radio in the, in the tent as we were. And, um, uh, of course, these days with internets and all that sort of thing, the World Service isn't quite so, so big a deal when you, when you go away. You're not quite so isolated, but it was pretty big in those days. Can you tell us more about the air war? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, well, the, uh, the air war started, I think, in uh, mid-January, uh, if I recall. We were, by that stage, uh, our trucks had started moving stuff way out in the desert uh, for, for the big, what can be known as the left hook. It was about an 18-hour journey up to the, the, the forward bits. But we were, we were, by that stage, we were living in a, in a, um, uh, emptied uh, workers' camps, so porter cabin type things, um, away from Blackadder, because they needed more tented space for the new units that were coming in. So the, those that have been in the tents longest got, got something more decent. So I was sharing a, a, a half a porter cabin with, uh, uh, one of the lieutenants and, um, and uh, we knew the air war might come soon. We didn't know exactly when. Um, and in fact, the uh, alarms went off, although I was in deep sleep at that stage. So I didn't actually hear the alarm, that particular alarm. They improved the alarms as a result. Um, but the first I knew that air war had gone off is when I was working up by the original second in command, Major Max Alexander, looking over my bed 
with his respirator on in full chemical warfare suit saying, wake up, wake up, why are you still in bed? And I can tell you, when you wake up to see someone in a respirator inches away from your face and you're fast asleep, it scares the bejesus out of you, I can tell you. So uh, <laughs> having recovered from the, uh, the heart attack, uh, I quickly donned my chemical suit and respirator because we, we didn't know what was going to be an immediate response by the Iraqis and we thought they might have launched chemical scuds uh, immediately. So, uh, so, uh, but we didn't have any bunkers because we were living in a, in a tarmac area, but we just stayed inside the, the cabins because obviously the worst part of it, unless you actually get hit by the missile, which is just, you know, it's really your unlucky day, um, it, what you need to be is undercover. Uh, when, when the gas clouds start coming and all that sort of thing. What was um, quickly became apparent, though, because the jets would break the sound barrier on the way up there and on the way back. Um, and, uh, but that created sonic booms. Uh, that scared the bejesus out of us as well. And we had these chemical detection systems called CALM monitors, um, which we didn't, had never used in anger uh, in practicing for the Russians to attack. And what we didn't know, no one realized, is bloody diesel fumes and, and uh, obviously it sets them off as a false alarm. So we, we moved them away from uh, where the trucks were. Um, but what we also didn't realize is um, uh, air fu uh, fumes from planes could set them off. And on one particular evening, um, a returning jet talker, they had been told, don't, don't break the sound barrier because you're scaring the troops on the ground. But he didn't care because he was a flyer. Um, broke the sound barrier, but I think he must have had a leaky fuel tank. So all we heard on the ground was big bang, and next to it, all the chemical alarms in the whole camp were going to lally. Uh, and so we thought it was a real thing. So we went charging around, got into our respirators, and these two radio operators in the back of the uh, Land Rover were closed down. And the heat from the radios uh, caused one of them to start sweating profusely. He, having panicked uh, at, the, at the bang and the chemical alarms, told his mate, I, I, I'm going down with... Going down with Hit me, hit me with my uh, atropine, which is a little auto-inject pen that goes into your ass just by putting against it. And so his mate shoved this massive big needle in his ass, his mate's ass, and uh, he then went down with atropine poisoning, had to be admitted to hospital, which was quite, quite amusing for the rest of us. Um, <laughs> what did, uh, but, did um, they, they were brutal, weren't they, about uh, what did they tell you was going to happen if you did actually get exposed? Um, well, we were... We were told that if, if, if anyone, if he did actually launch a chemical attack uh, and anyone actually survived it, uh, then the, the quickest trip home from the war was to be whisked away as proof positive that uh, uh, he had launched chemical, um, a chemical uh, uh, blister agent or something like that. Uh, so I was semi-hoping for just a, a couple of blisters, just on my wrist type thing, rather than getting covered by the whole, whole thing. Because you were going to send back in being demonstrated that he had used chemical weapons and that as a result, uh, the Americans would then start nuking uh, Saddam Hussein. We, we understood, I can't remember the name of the foreign uh, the, uh, secretary of state at the time, um, but we, he'd been in the, in the prelims beforehand. Apparently, he basically said, if you, if you, we heard, if you, if you even think about using uh, chemical standby for buckets of instant sunshine, which we think probably was enough to convince Saddam not to let chemicals loose. Um, Were there any precautions against nerve agent attacks? Um, yes, we took NAPS tablets, nerve, nerve agent pretreatment set tablets, uh, which basically builds up a bit of antibody within your within one's body, so that if you get hit with uh, nerve agent, it preserves enough twenty thirty percent of your nervous faculties so that you can still uh, operate uh, and, and get yourself somewhere safe and it, it doesn't kill you. The downside is that it makes you 
unbelievably windy. And so there were some massively impressive fights during commanding officers, O-groups and that sort of thing, uh, which just ruined the, uh, the atmosphere somewhat. Uh, when we actually went into the desert, they started injecting us with um, further chemical agent. I can't quite remember which ones they were, uh, but it had a, a, uh, an additional uh, jab, which basically gave you the flu. Um, and it was meant to preserve you against... There was some as I subsequently realized, some contentiousness about it, but we just took it at face value because we didn't want to have the actual chemical uh, um, reaction. Um, but it knocked you out for about a day. It knocked me out for about a day. I'd lie on my bed and do nothing. But bearing in mind, our job was to deliver thousands of tons of ammunition and fuel and all the rest of it. Uh, we had to do every second driver, or only one driver in every cab, or two. Uh, and that driver was just out of out of combat for about the best part of a day. In those days, we didn't have driver hours to worry about, anything like that. We just had to get on with the job. But it made it really challenging from a management point of view to make sure that trucks kept rolling. Cam, um, inevitably then, uh, in, in the Gulf War, Gulf One, as we call it now, you had uh, quite a lot of contact, I'm guessing, with American troops. Uh, yeah, we did. We came out of the US Marines initially, and then the US Infantry uh, afterwards, which were further out, the Marines ended up going into Kuwait. But um, during Thanksgiving Day, in the, obviously in the November, uh, 200 Brits were invited up to uh, somewhere in the desert where the US Marines were, where George, H, George F. W. Bush was going to fly in on US Marine One and have Thanksgiving uh, lunch with a whole bunch of people. Uh, there were some trucks behind us, um, having been having been told to take the bolts of our rifles because the US Secret Service didn't want any soldiers who were pissed off with the president taking pot shots. I dare say, but. We, uh, we thought, if Maggie Thatcher came out here, we'd be told to get rid of our bolts. So uh, we thought that was a bit weird. But, um, um, and so he flew in and uh, my ex-Sergeant Major, in fact, got a pic- great picture of him on a bonnet of Humvee with a, with a picture of George H.W. Bush. But uh, most of us are more excited to see Kate 80 taking pictures behind us and turning our backs on the president and just having had time to get photos with Kate 80. Uh, with their mobile phones or the concept of selfies didn't exist in those days but yeah it was all good fun stuff Alina have you got jump any, in have you got any more funny stories to do with the Americans the only reason I'm asking is because my uncle was actually stationed out there um, he is he is one of my heroes uh, forever and ever and if he's listening to this um, yeah I, you are one of my heroes deal with he, it he's 82nd uh, <laughs> airborne wasn't he yeah, he's 82nd Airborne, frontline medic, um, but during the Gulf War, he was actually in charge of the battalion's A station. Um, but I want to hear some more funny stuff about the Americans, uh, just to give him a laugh and to give us a laugh. Well, uh, w- what, what happened initially is um, we were located next to the US Marines, not the 82nd Airborne, I think they came along slightly after. But, uh, uh, and the Marines uh, said, hey man, you, you guys want to uh, play some soccer with us? Uh, and I said, that'd be great, because I'd also took my football referees uniform with me just in case, you know, as you do to all. Uh, wait a minute, um, wait, and, uh, you own a football referees uniform? I was, because re- oh, I was a referee. Oh, okay, uh, you are. Oh, you've just gone down in my estimations. I did not know that about you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but we also... We also took the regimental uh, football uniform with us as well. And Ten Regiment happened to be the Army football champions at the time. Uh, I didn't let that little fact in on the Americans. So the Marines got a scratch team of guys to come around and kick some football with the Brits. Uh, and we sent out our first 11. 
and I think the game ended about 12 nil, something like that. Uh, <laughs> but they didn't they didn't offer to play as football anymore. I think we got offered to go and play baseball with them afterwards, and uh, and they thrashed our asses accordingly, as you would expect. But uh, yeah, all good stuff, and we got on real well with the Marines uh, and with all the Americans. They were very hospitable. Um, and uh, they loved our Land Rovers, interestingly enough. They didn't like their Humvees. Their Humvees were very wide and low, very good mobility, but terrible for turning corners. And uh, so our Land Rovers were very popular. Uh, they're also very envious of our, our uh, motorcycles because we had dispatch riders and that sort of thing. Section commanders would ride a motorbike. So and they didn't have motorbikes. So, uh, but they had Apache helicopters, uh, US Abram tanks, uh, massive big guns, and a whole bunch of stuff we didn't have. But um, they liked our... our our peculiarity, but we got on very well with the Americans. It was was great. We did realise that they ate like shit. Their MREs, meals ready to eat, were terrible. Uh, they didn't have professional chefs like we did so much. Uh, and so one of our enterprising lieutenants, who was sent up to a, to, to a location just inland from the coast initially, um, contacted this American engineer unit nearby and said, "If I give you all your lads with my chef and my uh, my ten man ration packs and British rations and, and a hot meal." will you dig all my trenches for me with your engineer diggers? And they went, God damn, we will, man. And so the commanding officer went up there about a day later, expecting to see his lads digging in with hand shovels and uh, find them all in stage three defensive positions. He went, how the hell did you do that? He said, oh, well, that's a very good, sir. Without realising he just cheated and got some American enterprising help. So, yeah, it was all good fun. We got, in, <laughs> we got them well together. Tell us a bit more about this R&R. What did you get up to? Oh, well, uh, it was over New Year's Eve, uh, 1990, uh, and the, uh, the air war hadn't started, and so it was felt that we could trickle various soldiers down to Bahrain about two hours down the road um, to uh, have a bit of, bit of a break, because uh, Bahrain allows you to have a few drinks, whereas in Saudi Arabia, that's uh, out of the question. Uh, and so uh, we started doing that in December. Um, and obviously one of the highlights was getting Harry Seacombe uh, down to entertain the troops that, that dragged all the lads in like, like Billy O, as you can imagine. Um, he must have been uh, well old by then. Eh? He must have been really old by then. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, he was no spring chicken uh, and he's dead now, but he was, he was still alive then. So uh, <laughs> singing stuff, but um, yeah. Fair play so to we, him. Uh, we, um, I went down with the original second in command and my chief clerk, and uh, we were most impressed the RAF had organised all the hotels because that's what they do best, uh, and um, gave us uh, uh, 50 quid spending money, which we weren't expecting. Um, and uh, I, I drank my first alcohol in about three months, and uh, I was quite drunk. Uh, I don't quite remember seeing in the New Year, and I remember the hangover for about two days afterwards, so I treasured that for as long as I could, clearly, as we, uh, we left on New Year's Day to get back up to back up to work and back into uniform but uh, shockingly yeah, cool. shockingly for an australian did you not get absolutely trashed on four cans of wait for it fosters i know i know uh, you can't really you can't uh, can't choose your your options when you're in that sort of desperate situation you take what you can get but uh, yeah so anyway we, we finished the hour and hour and then the air war started i think i mentioned that uh, earlier which was uh, all, all good jolly hockey stick stuff um and then we were told to deploy up country uh and for those who uh, won't be aware everyone was concentrated on the coast initially and we were for, for about four weeks moving thousands of tons of ammunition and bulk fuel and uh and rations and spares about 120 miles west 
to a place called Alkazuma uh, into various dumps ready for the, um, the push because we were then chopped under command of the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marines are going to go directly north into, into Kuwait uh, when the attack came and we were going to do a left hook, as it were, uh, and encircle Kuwait, come to the northern area of Kuwait. So uh, we were pre-positioning all the, all the combat supplies. It's good stuff. And then it was time for the, our, our regiment to move up there and be based up there in the desert uh, in Burms, uh, surrounded by Burms, about 200 yards square. And life just got on with uh, normal routine. It wasn't that hot, to be to be honest, which was which was pleasant. Uh, but we were having, and one of the interesting aspects uh, the Saudis tend to view dogs as vermin. Uh, British soldiers tend to be quite soft and soppy about dogs. Uh, and uh, one of the lads in our, my headquarters squadron picked up a, a stray uh, puppy. And of course, the, the 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 word of the of the day at the time was scud. So we named the dog Scud. Uh, and uh, two or three soldiers were told to take turns looking after Scud, the puppy, and he'd wander around the, the area. We'd get them scraps from, from, the, from the kitchen. The chefs were, were busy cooking away. We even had the, uh, the army bakery baking fresh bread for us out there, which was, which was a great source of uh, morale. Um, and, uh, but one day, Scud decided to go fossicking, and the, the lad that was looking after him didn't quite pick up on the fact, and he suddenly realised Scud was missing. So he looked around inside the uh, uh, reasonably small area we were located in and couldn't find him. And he climbed up on the berm and realised Scud had climbed over the, the sand berm, which is about six foot high. Uh, and uh, he was just fossicking about 200 yards out in the desert. And so he yelled out, uh, Scud, Scud. Unfortunately, the, the air sentry air sentry nearby, uh, who was half asleep, suddenly realised and someone yelling out Scud. So he sounded the air raid warning. Uh, and the first I knew about it, and the rest of the, uh, the commanding officer and the, uh, the officers, was when we heard the air raid sign going. And uh, and so we uh, dropped all our, our belongings, grabbed our weapons, helmets, and uh, chemical suits, and dived into the bunkers, um, and uh, quickly put our chemical suits onto three Romeo, including uh, respirator, uh, anticipating a chemical attack. And in fact, it was just the puppy had just gone wandering. So. For about the next two weeks, that particular soldier was peeling quite a lot of potatoes as we, uh, <laughs> we walked into the lunch. But Poor it was it, it was amusing. But we, we, we collected Scud afterwards, got the vets to give him some jabs, and, and we brought him back to Germany. And he was in the, in the regiment for a period of time uh, before he uh, was discovered not to like females uh, for some reason because we were an all-male regiment. And uh, so we eventually had to... Uh, put him down but he had a, a year or two's more life in him than he would have been Saudi Arabia so that was the, the scud dog incident um, and interestingly one of the other areas that was uh, uh, we had a bunch of um, uh, augmentees with us uh, one of them was a corporal um, and he was tasked with leading a convoy of fuel tankers up to the final forward um, forming up point where the where they were going to deploy forward about 20 miles up the road and uh, uh, he lost. He was on a, on a motorcycle, which section one is road in those days, and uh, he forgot to look in his rear view mirrors. But the lead fuel tanker knew where they had to turn off at a very non-obvious point in the road because he'd done it four or five times before. So he turned off, and the rest of the convoy of fuel tankers followed him. And this lad just carried on riding his motorcycle, not realizing he didn't have any convoy behind him. And uh, and uh, and he eventually went missing and he went missing because he, well, he subsequently realized he ran out of fuel but by the time he'd got hold of some fuel from a passing u.s military policeman um and tried to get back and tried to find the, the ground war had then started um and so the whole fuel squadron had moved forward 
Meanwhile, his administrative officer, Captain of Mine, CB Booth, said, uh, we seem to have someone who's MIA camera. And I went, what do you mean MIA? We haven't started the war yet. And so uh, I had to, um, and the rules said we had to not pause in uh, declaring people missing in action. So the war had technically started because the air war was on. So I sent the signal off declaring him MIA. And he actually only felt... He turned up in the squadron, but by the time that happened, it was about 36 hours later, by the time he caught up with his fellow soldiers. Uh, and uh, it was only after the war he got very upset when he discovered his wife had been visited by an officer in uniform uh, that evening and, and informed that her son, was, her husband, was uh, was missing in action. Uh, in those days, you couldn't actually, we had no means, it was just signal signals sent formally. There was no internet or anything like that in those days. And uh, uh, and then the cancel missing in action signal was, was received and she got a visit the next morning saying he's been found and he's fine. But uh, it was just an interesting aspect of war reporting, which I hadn't really come across. That's um, um, grim, isn't it? Um, speaking of grim, um, you had to get people ready for um, burials, didn't you? Yes. Well, and of course, everyone looks, looks through the prism of... Um, uh, looking backwards and saying, well, it's a very short war. We only lost about 45 people, I think, something like that. Uh, it was all straightforward. But at the time, the Iraqi army was massive. And uh, whilst there was definitely third 11 to our, our premiership standard of uh, kit and all the rest of it, um, equally, if you put three football teams against Arsenal, uh, well, if you say Chelsea, obviously. Uh, obviously, Cameron, I believe I claimed you for Chelsea. <laughs> you, you might get someone luckily coming through. So we... We had no idea how many casualties we would take. And as I say, we were expecting 10%. 10% of a regiment of, of 700 is about 70. So um, so uh, my role as administrative uh, uh, head of administration with the regiment was to get the clerks. And we practiced um, uh, building shallow graves and, and doing the process, which takes you take one of the dog tags off because soldiers have two dog tags. You leave one dog tag with the body. Uh, the other dog tag gets taken with his personal effects and, and sent sent backwards for uh, for processing. The shallow graves were then meant to be, uh, obviously, after the war, would be all collected and, and the bodies would be sent to a, either repatriated to the UK or uh, or buried in situ. And if you remember in the Falklands, they were all buried in situ. That was the last war we buried troops in situ and had a, a, essentially a war grave down there. Uh, it was only as a result of, I think, Granby, where we started planning, uh, sending bodies back uh, that, that that process changed to um, the dead being repatriated. Uh, morbid stuff, but it, it was just it was just something that was different about Granby than than had happened before. But uh, I, I don't want to focus too much on the on the on the grim stuff, other than one sad incident, which um, which was uh, a bit of a learning curve for us. Uh, one of the artillery systems we had out there was a multiple launch rocket system, which would fire six hundred forty four bomblets basically into the sky above where the enemy was supposed to be and these had rained down uh, over a certain pattern and they were designed for the cold war when the russians would send hundreds of tanks charging down various valleys in, in west germany uh, and they were designed if they hit the top of the tank which is a uh, most shallow form of armor to have a self-forging fragment which would explode and hopefully uh, kill the tank crew but if it hit the ground, it would go bang and, and you know, potentially attack out infantry. Uh, what no one had anticipated was deploying this weapon system in the sandy environment. Um, and as a result, only we discovered subsequently after the war, there was about 30% blinds or, or, or bombers that did not go bang. And then sadly, uh, on one of, one of our convoys was taking uh, ammunition forward. In fact, it just stopped ammunition. It was coming back to resupply during the ground war itself. 
and uh, a lad driving McFadden because uh, lots of convoys would get stopped <coughs> every so often because of the traffic control because there was just hundreds of trucks and tanks moving all over the place. Uh, hopped out during a, a pause and, and did a bit of military tourism and, and picked up a shiny thing which he didn't realise was, was actually one of these MLRS bomblets and uh, the, uh, the tag, the cotton tag that was supposed to spin to make it armed and, and make it go bang hadn't deployed enough and he then pulled this out as he got back in the cab and as the truck set off it, it went bang and and he was uh, very badly injured and, and died about an hour later but luckily there was a uh, Pioneer Wargraves unit attached to a field hospital going forward to the front when they were able to take uh, poor driver McFadden's body off off the uh, hands of uh, the young lieutenant uh, who was obviously uh, had been trying to, to save him but it was a a fate that was never going to happen, but it was it was um, it was just one of those sad things. It was frustrating that you know of all you know, you sort of don't mind if the enemy get in and, and the enemy kill people because that's what war is about. It's when someone does something to themselves, and one of the the hardest uh, it's such a, a shame, as it were. And one of the hardest jobs the commanding officer had to do was write a letter to Don McFadden's mother, uh, oh not saying he was he was a silly bugger. Uh, but not obviously lying by saying he died bravely in battle because that wasn't the case either. So uh, uh, I never actually saw the letter, but it was um, it was uh, just one of those uh, things that, that that happens in war. That it was uh, it was a, a bummer at the time. But anyway, by the by, what, tell us uh, then. Um, tell us about um, the ground war because then it kicked off, didn't it? Yes, it was. It was uh, uh, the the thing that was most short of was fuel. Um, and uh, everyone had lots of ammunition, um, and that had been stopped for a lot by foot forward. People only consumed so much of rations, and the spares had been moved and all the rest of it, but it was a relatively short war, but the, the tanks were rushing forward uh, because, obviously, the opposition wasn't as uh, strong as they had anticipated, um, and the biggest thing to limit their, their, the pace of their movement was, was, was fuel, diesel fuel, which our, our fuel tankers had. Um, and literally, um, we were sending tankers forward to refill the smaller tankers, which would fill the tanks themselves. Um, and they go to a certain point in the desert to be to find it was wacky races as the as the tank regiments, uh, armoured regiments' own fuel tankers were racing back to be the first to get the fuel. Um, and um, when the war eventually ended, part of the reason why we couldn't go further forward was because we'd run out of fuel, not so much in totality, but forward stock fuel type thing so the tanks couldn't have got too much further uh but that was by that we would have made it one way or the other but they probably would have had to have a tactical pause before then proceeding it's a bit like rommel's senior logistic officer in the africa corps happened to be a major which was a bit of a example of how if you don't pay attention to us loggies you don't uh, necessarily get the service you need and fuel was one of rommel's problems too but anyway by the um Tell us about, uh, you've got reports of um, racing back to meet tankers, haven't you? Um, how desperate did the fuel situation get? It, it, well, it got very low indeed, because we could only travel so far um, in so much time. And uh, that literally, the, the drivers were dead on their feet. There was no drive, safe driving hours or anything like that in those days. And uh, as soon as they were sucked dry they were racing back as fast as the desert would allow them to go back to the bulk fuel installations and these big massive bladders which were in uh back in saudi arabia um and then back into the desert to drive you know 70 80 90 miles to, to refill the 
because we were, we were third line, so we were filling the second and first line tankers direct up in the middle of the desert and going further forward each time. So it was, um, it was, a, it was a big challenge. I think that was the hardest thing. That No one really ran too much short of ammunition. Uh, no one really ran short of spares as such, but it was, um, it was the fuel that was the, the great challenge. But, but, but we got there, and then, then basically the war finished rather abruptly because uh, we were anticipating it having to go on for much longer. Um, and uh, it was a bit of a sort of, oh, really? Well, it's just once, a few right? days, wasn't it? So I think it was only about four days in the end. I mean, yeah. there were, we were long, long hours. And, um, but, uh, and then it was a bit of a pause while everyone took stock and, and senior command, chain of command decided what to do when there were oil wells were burning and all that sort of routine. So uh, we took the opportunity to do a bit of uh, operational tourism uh, whilst obviously not going to uh, look for any shiny objects on the ground. Uh, it probably might have been a bit dangerous with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, but I went with uh, one of the other officers and we, we saw this Iraqi supply dump out in the desert. And we thought, oh, that's interesting. What are the, what's the Iraqi army's kit like? And we saw some of the helmets and they were just like our inner helmets, sort of plasticky sort of thing. So that they were helmets psychological, as we called them, because then you only thought you were being safe from shrapnel. Mm. But, um, but we did find brand new British pattern 58 webbing, which clearly the British had sold to the Iraqis some 10 years earlier, which we found rather bizarre and ironic. We were fighting people who were equipped with some of our own equipment. But uh, yeah, so and there were some, uh, I didn't personally see any um, uh, nasty sights of dead bodies, but some of our lads were, were there. In fact, one of, one of our bike, one of our dispatch riders um, found himself um, accepting the surrender of about 20 Iraqi soldiers and he was just on his motorcycle with his submachine gun with him. And he wasn't quite prepared to or knew how to handle the surrender of 20 Iraqi soldiers who themselves couldn't wait to surrender because the common law guard and Iraqi soldier didn't, didn't want to fight there anyway. Of course, he was being told to do it by Saddam. So, uh, and then as the war had finished, we were, weren't sure what the arrangements would be for the governance of Iraq afterwards and how soon uh, we will be told to uh, get out of Iraq because... Um, because clearly we weren't there to occupy Iraq. We were there to free Kuwait and then occupy Kuwait. So uh, the challenge was then on, challenge Annika, was to pick up as much of the stuff we'd dumped forward and get it back into Saudi Arabia as quickly as possible. So that became a reverse uh, supply chain uh, challenge of significant uh, proportions. But we, we, we got there. It took us a few days, but, but uh, that was all achieved. And, uh, and then essentially we were told to go back down to Al Jabal, back into the original uh, ex-workers camp that we were based in, um, get our trucks prepared and washed down as much as possible to put on, put on ships to go back. Some of the residual British Army elements in the UK had been told to go out there and do the sort of garrison stuff. Uh, and um, I remember one day we were um, in the cab, in the morale uh, sort of area for the officers and sergeants and uh, Ghost came on with Patrick Swayze. And, oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know if you've ever seen Ghost. Uh, I have, and, uh, yeah. But right at the end, you know, old Patrick Swayze goes off. I can't quite remember the ending, but it was really quite uh, quite teary. And I think quite, ultimately quite... what happens is he lets Whoopi Goldberg inherit his body. So does Demi Moore not end up like dancing with Whoopi? Go- it's creepy. Anyway. Oh, I remember it right, being creepy, right. but I remember yeah. my mum bawling her eyes out. Yes, well, unfortunately, so are we. 
we just running <laughs> a war against the Iraqis. And I've never seen 20 blokes in one room all manage to turn in precisely the opposite direction so no one could see anyone else looking at your face as you're carefully trying to wipe your eyes. But it's quite amusing to watch these hardened sergeants and sergeant majors. Of course, I was fine. I, I wasn't crying. I don't of get course. emotional like that at yeah. all. No, well, you, um, you were probably off your face on Foster's already. Did they give you beer? Well, we- we, weren't, we didn't have beer then, but we, with General Delabillier, who was the British general, had to order the RAF to uh, give us a free beer on the plane. So we were taken back to the planes a week or two later. Uh, and uh, I was sitting up in business class in this chartered plane because I, I got in early with the commanding officer. Um, and um, I had this beer and, and, and I opened it and it tasted absolutely gopping. And I thought, oh, my God, I've gone off beer. Uh, but actually... <laughs> The RAF got their own back on us because they were told they had to give us beer, but they didn't actually say it had to be proper beer. So they bought the cheapest possible Paderborn or Pilsner or something or other. It was actually disgusting beer. So uh, we got back and then within a within a, um, a week or two, we decided to pack all the stuff and go away on um, some much-earned post-tour leave. Uh, and I went off to R&R in London to meet the pen friend I'd been having chats with. Oh, with and it didn't mate. end well. You told us it didn't end well. I'm Didn't just laughing my right. head off at the thought of the RAF getting their own back on you for calling them civvies in uniform, basically. Is that yes, not what the army yes. was, the RAF? Uh, something like that. The Independent Republic of the RAF. That's yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> Look, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about Op Granby. Um, we're going to put this out as like a, a little bit of oral history for people um, to listen to um, in line with some programming that we've got um, about oral history and how to use it um, with Peter Hart. So thank you so much for essentially being no a guinea pig because now people will get all of this newfound information about how to uh, work with oral history and they can test it on you. Excellent. I uh, really enjoyed talking to you, Alex and, and uh, Alina. It's, uh, it's been great uh, and uh, a great break from my day job. And now back to fight the COVID battle. And good luck with it. We're very grateful yeah. for all that you're doing. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.